As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. What percent of the police live in a city? Uh, 5% or so. 5%, so 95% don't live in the city. So when you say that the vast majority of the percentage goes towards salaries, et cetera, fringe benefits, that means that they take their money on 81, go to outside the city, pay taxes in those communities that have some of the best schools while we have an underfunded school district. $60 million. So I just want to put into context what we're talking about, because it's really easy to say, Mayor, and with all due respect, I like you, but that was a very politician answer. Which, I'm it's, sorry, what specifically? The, the, we will consider and we will look. What, I'm, what, I'm, what we're saying is we're not interested in considering and looking. What we're saying is actually this 50 million commit to 20 million cut because we're sending money as the mayor of Syracuse. When you don't have a tax base, you're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. Because their pensions, their health insurance, their families. So we are funding for other people's communities to have the promise of the American dream while we are denying it in our community. That was our guest today, Yusuf Abdul Qadir, whose clip went viral actually, in which he spoke in a community town hall, I believe. And when I heard that and I saw that go viral, I thought to myself, this is probably one of the easiest ways to understand what we mean by reallocation of funding. Thank you for joining us, bro. So good to have you on the Malcolm Effect today. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Let's just go straight into it. What was the background to that talk? Yeah, it's really important to put in the context what that talk was, because it's really easy for people to kind of pick at it and make it mean to them what they want it to mean. Yes. What this was about was, there's a few things that this was about. First, it was about what democracy should look like, right? Often mm-hmm. when we go to meetings with elected officials, or you go to a town hall, or you go to a community forum, or a budget hearing, or some kind of public meeting, you are provided oftentimes an opportunity to give a comment, but you don't often get a response. And Mm. we wanted to really change the dynamic, because what we were really explicit in making sure that both the elected and public officials there understood, and the broader community understood, was that they're not called public servants because we serve them. They're called Mm -hmm. public servants because they serve us. And in a moment where we're in a crisis in our country and globally, where we're beginning to really where everyone is beginning to realize the racial fissures that exist in every society, the kind of ways that white supremacy has organized and structured every part of our lives, everything from Mm -hmm. the laws that rule us to our definitions of beauty, right? Everything Mm -hmm. in our society is structured around white, heteronormative, straight, Christian, male dominant. And everyone else in society is a fraction of that. If you're a woman, if you're a Black person, if you're a Muslim, then you are always viewed as if... As the other. Exactly. And so it was really important for us to kind of interrogate that in this moment where we're seeing COVID-19 devastating Black and brown communities specifically, Mm -hmm. when we're seeing... And as we were seeing throughout the summer, the continued police state-sanctioned violence against Black bodies Mm -hmm. and the depth 
at Black bodies at the hands of those who are supposed to, quote unquote, protect and serve, that it was really important for us to say that we're not going to accept this any longer. And it wasn't even a public forum that was scheduled. We actually said that we want to have a meeting with our elected officials and that we weren't going to have a meeting traditionally behind closed doors, that we wanted the entire community and what wound up happening the world to see what democracy should look like. That Mm -hmm. when an issue of importance is raised that your elected and public officials ought to respond to it and they have a responsibility. So that's the first part of what that video is about. Um, okay. It's also you. Before just to cut you off, I'm going to ask a very superficial question first, and then we're going to pack it and hopefully get to more some more depth. The first question is, what's it like to go viral? Honestly, I did not plan. None of us planned for that video to go viral. We knew its importance. Uh, it's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, because you you see the people who retweet it or share it, and it's gone. I think to like over 12 million now. But it, but it also is humbling because mm-hmm. you it makes you realize that you're in this work and it's it's important and it matters. And it's important, not just for me, but really for all the people whose labor went into making that event happen and who gave voice to a movement in a moment that is so important in our country and as well as world history. So it's absolutely. pretty exciting. Okay, no, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the most, literally one of the most strongest cases I've made such, in such plain terms for what is meant by real, reallocation of funds. Okay, so you just, you, you kind of prefaced the beginning of your, what you, what your response to me with by saying it means different things different people so am i correct in my understanding that that clip was about defunding the police and what it means absolutely it is absolutely about defunding the police especially because in new york state and in the u.s generally but especially in new york state the way that we fund communities like schools is through property taxes, right? And Mm -hmm. when you live in a home and you buy a home, you pay a property tax and that money goes towards funding the schools. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, in the city of Syracuse, we are one of the most impoverished communities in the country. We have the highest concentration of poverty amongst Blacks and Latinos in the United States. We're the ninth most segregated county in the country. We have the most underfunded school district in in, in the state of New York. We have some serious challenges. And 95% of our police force do not live in the city that they police. And it's not wow. just about making sure police live in the communities that they serve. That's important. It's not just because of the race of the police are largely white, like 92% of the police force is white in a city that's mostly of color. It's not just wow. that, right? Because I think people want to say, well, we just need more black cops, or we need to make sure that the police live in the communities that they serve. It's about the mm-hmm. institution of policing itself. And mm-hmm. why we call for defunding the police is because if you look at the institution, it's going to always bear the same fruit, right? Yep. The institution in the U.S. is born out of maintaining slavery. It's born yep. out of furthering Jim Crow. It's when you see the images of John Lewis, a, a famed, now recently died civil rights activist, giant, a legend. Yep. Who fought for voting rights in the U.S., and you see him crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and you see the images of the people that are attacking them, those are police. And that's Mm -hmm. in the history of policing in the U.S. And so in a moment where we're seeing the excessive deaths of Black and brown people from policing, it's easy for people to say, we need to provide better training. It's easy for people to say, we need to do community policing. It's easy for people to say, we have to diversify the force. What isn't easy to do is to talk about the ecosystem that plagues black and brown lives that create the realities that we see in in our communities today. 
So essentially, are you for reform or are you saying you're an abolitionist? So personally, and I, I struggle with this, I'm being transparent. I believe in building towards abolition. And as okay. Malcolm would say, by any means necessary. And okay. sometimes that means taking measures that are reform measures, right? Yeah. Like, because there are things that have to happen today, right? And also Absolutely. there are things that need to be transformative. You know, Malcolm is known for saying that if you put a nine inch blade in my back and you remove it six inches, I still have the blade in my back, right? Yeah. That's progress to some people. That's not progress, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. the wound is still there. And even removing the blade yeah. as you continue is not progress, right? You actually have to heal the harm that you caused. Mm. Well, we can't actually get to a place of healing the harm that was caused if we keep funding the things that create the harm. And that's why well, I'm then, very interested you know, in funding and abolition. Okay, so let's break it down because we hear these terms a lot and we hear a lot of people have used these as, you know, people want lawlessness and people want, you know, to just let, you know, you hear the kind of right-wing commentators or let prisoners and, so not prisoners, like rapists and pedophiles, you know, all these things, yeah? So break it down in the simplest terms. What is meant by defunding the police? And then what is meant is when we talk about a world without, quote-unquote, normative policing as we know it. Yeah, I think it's important to do that. And I think what that clip does is talk about the way that we fund certain parts of our lives, like mm-hmm. making sure that communities are over-policed, that they are oversaturated with language, equipment, technologies of war deployed at that they're occupied territories with an occupying force. This mm-hmm. warrior cop mentality, this war on crime, war on drugs, war on terror approach to dealing with yeah. really essential issues of poverty. Yes. And what defunding the police is about is saying that a police officer should not show up to a mental health crisis. Because when that happens, what we see is, especially when they're black people or brown people, that can result in that individual's death. That mm-hmm. policing as an institution is born out of ensuring social structures that dehumanize, criminalize, and impoverish black people. And that mm-hmm. if we wanna stop seeing the types of outcomes that we have in these communities, we cannot continue to fund the things that create these outcomes. If we funded schools and mental health programs and nutrition programs and after school programs and the types of quality of life concerns that are really plaguing these communities, as opposed to continuously charging them with crimes and incarcerating them, we'd have different outcomes. And that's really what defunding the police ought to be about. Okay. And then if we can go a little bit into abolition, then what does the world, what does the world look like without quote unquote normative policing as we know it today? And as I said, I struggle with this, right? Because, you know, I... My brother, I grew up in the Bronx in a moment when in the late 80s, 90s, my brother and many people died of drive-by shootings. It was rampant Mm. in New York City at the time. And so I intimately understand and my mother intimately understands what it's like to have a loved one lost to gun violence. Mm. And a part of why our approach has been incremental transformative was because we recognized that there are mothers who live in a neighborhood where their son was killed. And we don't mm-hmm. want to be insensitive to those mothers. But what I would ask your listeners to do is to, for a moment, close their eyes and imagine what a safe community looks like. I would reckon that you would think that you would see trees and birds and you would see kids playing and you would see vitality and livelihood. You would see a grandmother rocking chair and crocheting or you, you would see active yeah. and you would see liveliness. What you wouldn't see and, and your definition of safety is someone being put in a cop car. What you wouldn't yes. see is someone being thrown against the wall and padded down. 
What you wouldn't mm -hmm. see is someone being chased and shot at by a police officer. So why is it that whenever we look at creating policies around safety, that's all that we fund? Exactly. We don't fund I mean, the things I that give us that vitality. Exactly. So essentially what we're saying is I think people kind of, I think quite deceptively equate abolition with kind of like lawlessness and, you know, nihilism and these kind of things. And I think, no, it's just saying ultimately we're looking at a new approach in how we ensure law and order in a way that hasn't been done before. Well, because clearly, I mean, uh, just to give some context, the UK context, for example, we have our, I don't know if you're aware of our home secretary, her name is Priti yeah. Patel. Yep. So she is like, you know, this hard law and order, just for funny, I don't know if you saw recently, they asked several of the party leaders and ministers in government and opposition, you know, how, what got you through 2020? And people were saying, you know, being able to read more books or being able to spend more time with my family or being able to support, you know, and this pretty Patel to give a context of what she's like. She said that what got me through 2020 was knowing that, you know, criminals and perpetrators have no safe refuge in our streets and going on raids with police officers in the early hours of the morning. And I thought, wow, OK, everyone has their own kicks, I guess. <laughs> Everyone has their own kicks, I guess. But, you know, she's been very tough on crime. She's, she's vowed to put 30,000 more officers on the street. But the question I put to people and to listeners is that from 1985 until 2020, we have consecutively increased the budgets, budgeting for policing in the UK, and we've mm -hmm. consecutively increased police officers. That has not resulted in any material uh, kind of depreciation or material decrease in, poli in crime. What does that say? Mm -hmm. That says the way we're doing policing is, not, is by design not set up to decrease uh, crime levels. And in fact, all it does is make more quote-unquote criminals. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. I, to, I could not agree with you even more. Everything you said both resonates and really hit, gets at, like, the, the, again, the histories behind these things. Because the idea of what's law and order is, is baked in social Darwinist theory, right? This eugenics mm -hmm. types of theory where people are prone to criminality. And because they're prone to criminality, we have to continue to monitor, surveil, and incarcerate them because they, they're not worthy of being in society. And I think Literally. the racial undertones of that are often mis are often misunderstood and underappreciated. But more mm -hmm. importantly, to your point, we're not actually funding the things that we know work, right? Like we exactly. know that like when kids are in school and graduate, that they're more likely to be successful. We know that when people don't have to, you know, live on on small budgets and and aren't like starving, that like the crime rate goes down. And and I don't want to give the sense that poor people are prone to criminality because that's also something that also happens. But yeah. the way that we police poor and black and brown communities versus wealthier white suburban communities is very different. Yep. Like wealthy. And, 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 and I, I went to, and I lived in London, by the way. I studied abroad in London. Okay. I lived in central London. And I remember, yeah, I lived in a very nice area of Russell Square. I didn't have. Oh, you bougie. My university. <laughs> So it was a nice area and I didn't have any worries or concern. And I remember going to East London and I felt comfortable in East London. I had no yeah. issues at all in East London. That's where I grew White up. Yeah. So Whitechapel <laughs> area is where, is where I was. Yeah. And I noticed there was a, an increasing police presence at the time. And it just, mm -hmm. it just, it bothered me because there was more drug use and illicit behavior Absolutely. in Russell Square than there was in East London. But the types of response from law enforcement was very different. And it, it just goes to show that it's not about, quote unquote, safety. It's always about order and social order, which, again, goes to the eugenics racist history of who is violent and virulent and, exactly. and criminal and animalistic. And that's, that's, to me, the crux of these issues. So when I hear 
Priti Patel and others talk in that kind of tone, it's very difficult for me not to kind of cringe for a moment because what they're saying is that we should justify the ways that we are devastating people's lives. And that's not okay. Literally, literally. And I feel like if we take the example of the UK and a public health approach, I mean, again, to echoing what you said, we are not focusing on the things that work. I mean, Akala has put, you know, Akala has debunked the black on black crime in probably one of the most strongest, you know, ways in how he kind of debunks it. And but he says that Scotland had an issue with crime, with quote unquote, you know, young black people or young people or particularly demographic from a particular socioeconomic background involved in violent crime. They took a public health approach. And what happened? We saw significant decrease in levels of that of crime, of violent crime between young people. So we've seen a model that works just down, you know, across the way from England. But the British government, sorry, the English government does not want to use the same approach. For what reason? I mean, again, not to be a kind of, you know, a conspiracy theorist or, you know, a cynic, but it's almost as if they want certain demographics to be criminalized and, be, and made into criminals. One can't help but think that. I am not a conspiratorial thinker either, but I think that when we look at the history and we look at the ways that we have developed the laws, that that has been the intention. And in the U.S. context, you know, after the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, except when you have when a person's convicted of a crime, as the 13th Amendment to the Constitution goes, you know, you, what wound up happening is a creation of a whole series of, of laws that criminalized behavior that only black people did so that you could put them back into slavery. So it's it's not conspiratorial because when you actually look at the historical record, you can actually see that there were laws that were created explicitly and exclusively to structure social order of black people and brown people in ways yeah. that are very different than white people. It's not conspiratorial. Absolutely. I want everyone just to take a minute. Everyone just take a second, a few seconds. Can we just like reflect and deep what Yusuf said? He said that the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, they had to have an amendment in the United States to recognize the humanity of black people. Can we just think about that for a second? I think people overlook that, that the black people's humanity wasn't a given in the United States of America. It was something that had to be legislated and then amended upon on top of that. I always find that quite, you know, mind boggling when I just to even to kind of uh, contemplate over. But yeah, well, as you said, the point, yeah. Then so the 14th, and, then, and then the 14th Amendment made us citizens, right? So it's it's not just the 13th See? Amendment that ended slavery. It's like then the 14th Amendment had to say like anyone born in the U.S. is now a citizen, right? So like it had to be, if it wasn't clear before that slavery is done and that these are human beings, well, also to be clear, they're also citizens, right? And so, and what that means in the legal sense is that they are afforded protection, right? Because when, yes. when you are a citizen, you have certain rights that are inherent in your citizenship, right? That yes. if you're not a citizen, you may not also have. If you're a permanent resident, if you are a refugee, you may not have the same type of rights that you yep. are afforded and protections, right? So that's, that's the thing that like, it had to be explicit. And then on top of that, we had to have civil rights, right? Because it yep. wasn't enough that the constitution said that we had, and we're still not there. Right. So exactly. it, it is absurd to your point. Absolutely. And just to kind of backtrack to your point of Russell Square and, you know, your, the, the kind of difference between Russell Square and, and East London, I always say, and many people have brought this up as well. I believe Akala mentions it a few times that 
if you were to police, let's say Glastonbury, which is particularly, you know, an indie kind of, you know, majority of people who go there, are, you know, white. If you were to, you know, police Glastonbury the same way you probably, you know, uh, policed inner city, quote unquote, inner city festivals, I guarantee you'll find more drugs in Glastonbury and more class A drugs as well. Mm-hmm. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. But it's not. Yeah. Again, certain uh, communities are not policed in the same way that black and brown communities are. Okay, you as someone as an activist who are on, is on the street, you know, who's kind of involved in this work, what's your response to people who say defunding the police as a slogan is detrimental to the cause? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it doesn't matter what you would have called it, that it would have been, mm-hmm. people would have had that same perspective. And I, I think actually what it has done is spark a conversation that otherwise didn't mm-hmm. exist. So I, I really resent and push back at people who say that because it's not a slogan. It's not a tagline. It's a, it's a policy position. It's pretty explicit what it is. The policy mm-hmm. position is defund the police. That's, that's the explicit thing. And the reason why people are calling for that is because after decades of, of quote unquote reform and decades of training and decades of tough on crime tactics, you can't reform this. Like you can't change this. You can't, yeah. what you have to do is defund it because what it's doing is taking money. And that's again, what that quote is about. In a city like Syracuse, that is significantly poor, we as mm-hmm. the poor people are funding for other communities to be wealthy. So they can then come and put us in jail. That's the absurdity of it. That's the way that this system has manifested itself after decades and generations. And so, yeah, we absolutely ought to be taking money out of putting people in jail and putting money into people's pockets, putting money into putting food on people's tables, putting money into schools, putting money into healthcare and treatment mm-hmm. and, and rehabilitation, putting money into essential human services that gives people the best shot at having a decent life. And when you do that, it actually works. And it's tried and tested. Yeah. It is. I mean, there's plenty of examples around this. Absolutely. Can I just ask you now then? Okay, let's talk about what it was like living under Trump's America. Has this made those causes ever much, so much more difficult? And do you have any faith in a Biden presidency? So, you know, America is America. And Trump, I think it's easier for people to say that he was a blip. He was, Trump is the manifestation of everything that was America in the most crudest mm-hmm. sense, right? In the bravado, in the arrogance, in the most negative attributes of us. And it's kind of interesting, right? That like you have Obama who is like cool and reasonable and and smart and intellectual and black and suave and cultured and worldly, right? So there's that there's that America. And then there's also the like brash, abrasive, rude, disrespectful America. And what both yeah. of them demonstrate is that both of these are America because effectively we are a country that's 50% Trump and 50% Obama. Yeah. And we have to reckon with that. And so living under Trump as a black person and as a black person who's Muslim, as a black person who's Muslim, whose wife was born in Bangladesh, right? Yeah. Like, it was not a good time. But to be honest with you, it's not something that I think that I was surprised with. Because as black people, like, we know America. I think for a lot of people, they had a Hollywood version of America that okay. they had to reckon with. But this is not, I am not surprised with the America that produced Trump, because that mm-hmm. America has been in and with America since the Civil War. And it never died. It just was quieted. It put on a nice suit. It put on a nice tie. It spoke a nice language. But the same policies it's still, were in that under Nixon. Exactly. It's still an empire. No matter how you look at it, no matter who's at the head of the empire, it's still an empire. 
at the end of the day, an empire has, you know, ambitions of, you know, expanding and control and dominance. So it's still an empire, no matter, who's the, no matter who is the face of the empire. You can have a cool face, as you said, Obama, and you can have, a, you know, the brash face that we had in Trump. However, I'm going to not push back, I'm just going to interrogate that. On Obama, yeah. then. Let's not forget that under Obama, Black Lives Matter emerged under a black president and under a black attorney general. Yeah. So yep. I want to ask you then, when it comes to Obama, someone who's a president, you know, I think you saw him, um, you saw him recently kind of talk down about defund the police and say he's just a snappy slogan. And, you know, if you want to get actual work done, he, you know, and Obama, you know, he is the quote unquote ideal neoliberal cent- centrist, cares a lot about his legacy, tries to build the bridges between people and get things done. As someone who's involved in work and activism and, and wanting to achieve tangible results, do you think it's about being radical and, and about, you know, being radical and, and organizing in a radical way? Or is it about the Obama approach in that, you know, build coalitions of people, reach out to people on the right and center right and not be so brush in, in, your, in your approach? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I go back to, you know, Malcolm is by any means necessary, right? I think people yeah. often, people come to that, that phrase to mean many different things. I think it means what it means by any means necessary. If the means that are necessary are the moderated approach, then those are the means that are necessary. I think we're at a moment. And in fact, in our organizing work, two years ago when we started our coalition, because this is not a new coalition that's been doing work for two plus years, now going on three years. We actually talked about abolition in the first phases of our work. And we talked about defunding police three years ago. And we said then strategically and tactically that we are not there yet. We have to actually build to getting there. And the reason why we were able to say what we said that day is because we built enough successive work and built power so that at that moment, that was the only solution that we could do because we actually tried everything. We tried to Mm -hmm. work with you. We tried to litigate you. We tried to create policies. We tried to have forums. We We tried everything. And it doesn't work. And that's why we now have to take a radical shift. Mm. And it's only, quote unquote, radical because of how askew we have come to. And I think that's the part about, quote unquote, radical approaches that people don't understand. It's only radical because we have actually gone so radically off where we should be that in order to get us to a decent place, that we have to be radical. We have to take a radical shift. So, yeah, I do think sometimes the Obama approach works. Sometimes you need to take a more radical approach. I think you should, as a strategist, as an organizer, you should not take anything off the table. All of those approaches should be on the table. And I think it's very, I don't know, I think it's very telling or very, there's a misunderstanding taking place here. The activists are not politicians, unless they get elected, unless they become elected, for example, like Corey Bush, Mm -hmm. for example. But activists, you know, the job of the activist is to put pressure on the elected official. Exactly. It's put pressure and to move them into positions. I guarantee the fund the police was not like, you know, it's become a global thing right now. Abolition work is not new. Abolition literature is not new. But now it's globally speaking, so it's reached the UK. We're talking about reimagining law and order. And this is the work of activism. Now, politicians have the role of taking that now, taking that energy and translating it and, you know, kind of translating it into policy. And I think people, people misunderstand the roles. It's not the, it's not the job of the activist or the person in the street to kind of conform to some kind of respectability politics, in my opinion. Anyway. Not at all. It's not. It's our job to push you, our job to yeah. hold you accountable, our job to push the envelope, our job to imagine the future and to bring it to fruition and to demand that it happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my question then, do you have any hope in the Biden presidency? You know, I do. I don't, I don't think okay. that, um, it's, there's a few things, right? First, I actually live 
next door to where Biden lived when he went to Syracuse for law school. So that's okay. funny, funny kind of history. Um, <laughs> and I live in the place where he went to law school and where he, his first, where his sons were born, where his wife was from. Um, wow. So, you know, we have a lot of attachment to Biden being from Syracuse University and being a student at Syracuse University and a graduate of Syracuse University. But I also, there are specific concrete things that he can do that are important for Black people's lives, right? Absolutely. So while I also want something more ambitious, there's also the urgency of stopping the bleeding that he can do. Things okay. like ending the Muslim ban, right? Like he can mm-hmm. end that. Things like yeah. ending the child separation policy, he can end that. Things like mm-hmm. addressing climate change and rejoining the Paris Agreement, he can do that. Things like the Supreme Court and stopping the conservatives from adding more people to the court, right? Mm-hmm. There, there are concrete specific things that affect Black people's lives now that just exactly. having him there, we're in a better place. Okay. But it doesn't mean that, that, that the work stops. It's actually our job to push him. It's our job to implore him to be the ambitious president that he ought to be. You know, people mm-hmm. look at Biden, and to me, I think of LBJ, right? And it's actually quite similar, the way that, like, you had Obama being the kind of cool cosmopolitan avant-garde future president like a JFK was at the time, right? Yeah. And JFK's vice president being LBJ. LBJ, yeah. this kind of creature of the Senate who'd been in the Senate for decades. But LBJ is who got the civil rights laws into effect. Mm. The civil rights laws were not the same civil rights laws that LBJ was going to do, though, right? The Voting yeah. Rights Act that we got was the Voting Rights Act because organizers demanded it to be stronger. Yeah. The Fair yeah. Housing Act is there because people protested to make it happen. And LBJ, being a creature of the Senate, was able to manipulate the skill and craft of legislation to make it happen. But it mm-hmm. was the kind of convergence between organizers demanding change, a really effective dealmaker in LBJ to make it happen, and yeah. those two things coming together that made us have the various civil rights acts that we have. So yes, Absolutely. as a student of history, I, I think there's hope to be had, but it's not going to just be because he's president. We got to push him like we would yeah. push anyone. I think essentially what you're saying is that just because we're biding in office, it doesn't mean we take our ga- foot off the pedal, basically, foot off the gas, our feet off Absolutely the gas. Absolutely not. We, we, we actually push the pedals even harder. Exactly. And finally, I'm going to ask you, on your bio on Instagram, or, or sorry, on Twitter, it says Afrofuturist. Can you explain what yeah. that is? Afrofuturist, I am constantly thinking about the futures of Black people. And, you know, people think about an ideal future for Black people. One of the kind of Afrofuturist images is, is Wakanda, right? And everyone was like, Wakanda forever. Yeah. But, but the way that the climate crisis, the way that environmental degradation, the way that racial injustice, the way that kind of information technology, constant surveillance all affect Black people, what would a future yeah. be like for Black people when we think about centering Blackness in the solutions to those problems, in the mm-hmm. solutions to technology, in the solutions to climate, in the solutions to environmental degradation, in the solutions to racism? And for me, as I'm constantly thinking about the futures of Black people, I'm thinking about the way that our technology has spawned in such ways to, prevent, to present so many opportunities for improving the lives of Black people. And by Mm -hmm. leveraging the climate crisis and the opportunities that that crisis can create by centering Blackness is what I think about as an Afrofuturist. Just unpack that, but what do you mean by centering Blackness? Yeah, so really, I think about 
the way that facial recognition technology, for instance, is weaponized in a way that's biased against Black people. And by saying in centering Blackness that we reject any technologies being developed, that in fact, Mm -hmm. technology should be created to advance human civilization. And if the most marginalized are Black people, then if we center Blackness and Black people as not just an afterthought or as a kind of conciliatory left of the crumbs to the pie, but as like, if we address the, the, the issues that affect Black people's lives in the design of technologies and in the design to the climate crisis and the solutions that should be emerging out of it, that actually everyone benefits. And to be even more explicit, by going back to thinking about how we can regenerate Africa as a continent, how we can make sure that environmental stewardship, protecting climate and people's ability to thrive in climate and leveraging the, the tools that innovative technologies have to creating a really a renaissance for Black people. Mm. Um, it's really what I'm often thinking about. And whether it's Black people on the continent, Black people in the diaspora, in the US, the UK, in Europe, in Latin America, and beyond, that is what I'm passionate and, and intimately and constantly thinking about. A Black renaissance. That's what I'm here for. That's what yes. I'm here for. Thank you so much, bro. I'm going to post Yusuf's um, socials in the comments in the description of this episode. I can't wait for you lot to hear this. Again, this has been an absolutely awesome episode, man. One of my favorites, actually. Guys, you are listening to The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, subscribe, whether you're listening to an Apple podcast, Spotify, or YouTube. And until next time, take care.